Coast2Coast.io. Welcome to the Coast to Coast Podcast. We are back here with episode 34. I'm your host, Kyle Creasy. And today I have a really fun episode for you, a little bit on the longer end, um, but it's totally worth the listen uh, if you guys tune in all the time or if you've never tuned in before, just because the two guys that I have in today are here to talk about the Lakers and the Bulls. First was Sam Quinn, um, who is a CBS NBA reporter. And the second was Rob Schaefer. And Rob covers the Bulls for NBC Sports Chicago. Really good conversations with both of these guys about two teams that have kind of been on the struggle bus in a sense this season. Um, so I thought that it was fitting to have both of them on at the same time. Um, with Sam, you know, we just talk about the Lakers struggles, 80s dominance. Um, what's what's maybe the outlook for the team going forward? And with Rob, we just kind of talk about what's going on with the Bulls just in general, man. I mean, just the injury to Alonzo, people being in and out of the lineup, Billy Donovan extended, just two really good conversations with these two guys. So I'm ready for you guys to hear those. Uh, but before we get to those, as promised, your stock risers and stock fallers are back. So if you're a longtime listener, then you know what this is. This is where I, the host, Kyle Crazy, I pick two. We used to do three whenever we had more people, but I'm going to be doing two stock risers, you know, two. I'm going to be doing teams, and I might throw players in that I think have really been playing better recently need recognition, and two stock followers who are people that just haven't been playing as well or, you know, falling off the cliff a little bit. Uh, I'm going to start out with my stock followers today. Um, the first of two is the Wizards. This team has really been struggling through the last 10 games. They have the worst record in the entire league with at one and nine. Um, they've lost eight in a row, which is the longest losing streak in the NBA right now. They just can't really figure anything out. And it's a really weird situation. Um, you know, they went into the season without tanking aspirations and they might by default end up being tanking without even intentionally trying to. So it's just been a really rough start for them. You know, they were 11 and 10. Some things were looking promising and then they just drop eight in a row. I just, I'm kind of, I wasn't very high on this team going into the season, but I'm definitely getting even lower than I already was. Um, they're currently at 12th in the East and I mean, they're two games ahead of the Magic, and the Magic, the Pistons, and the Hornets are all right there at the bottom. And the Magic, more the Magic and Pistons and Hornets, all all more so due to injuries, have been down there whenever they may have had the intention of trying to be like a lower level play in or just outside. And I mean, the Wizards are a team trying to win and are barely above them. So, just a really weird situation. They are on my stock fallers uh, this week. My other stock faller is a little combination of Trey Young and the Hawks. Obviously, Trey Young and Nate McMillan had that miscommunication. I'm not going to go into detail. Pretty much everyone who listened, who knows about the NBA or, or just pays attention to the NBA knows that there was a discrepancy between Trey and head coach Nate McMillan. The Hawks are 2-5 and five since that miscommunication and all that news broke out. Um, one of those wins being the night where it was like DeJounte Murray and like a and a bunch of the other guys that were – you know, having to play in major roles that don't normally play in those bigger roles due to other injuries on the Hawks. They beat the Nuggets, and that was a good win. And But they, it's, you know, it's been one in five since then. And, and the win 
was a win that was just crazy against the Bulls. You know, they foul DeMar DeRozan, who gets three free throws, makes all three, but then they end, they wouldn't have even probably got what they were looking for on the first inbounds play. They, they called timeout, so they had advanced it. They were on the side. They go to throw it. Trey was throwing the ball in. And then whenever they called the timeout, because they didn't have anything, smart by Nate McMillan, perfect execution. They use Trey as a decoy running off a double stagger, and it frees up the backside lob to A.J. Griffin, who has a really nice finish, underrated finish in my opinion. He had to turn his body with .5 left and makes it. That's that's A.J. Griffin's second game winner of his young career already. But just a really rough stretch for the Hawks here. And with all the trade noise around John Collins, um, they just made a pressure – I don't want to call it a pressure trade, but they just made a trade to try to contend more for DeJounte Murray in, in trading three of their first-round picks for the future. But things just haven't been working out right now, especially as of late since that miscommunication. So they have time to turn it around. Guys have been hurt. You know, we've still not seen the full iteration of the Hawks yet in terms of we've seen the starting five. But I mean with uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich coming off the bench as well because he's been revolutionary for this team already in terms of just production off the bench. So hopefully we see them better. Trey, in this since that miscommunication, has been shooting 39% from the field, 19% from three, 87% from the line. But part of that might be due to his shoulder injury. You know, he had a nagging shoulder injury. That's why the discrepancy with Nate McMillan happened was – I don't know. I'm not going to go into detail about it. But – I think that the Hawks potentially could be okay, but it's just not looking very good. Three and seven in their last 10, and for the first time all season, they're below 500. So ninth in the East right now after a really hot start, being at third and fourth, switching with the Cavs, just not been able to maintain. So we'll see. But my stock risers, my first one is going to be the New York Knicks. Um, This Knicks team were 10 and 13, ended up there on a five-game win streak now. They've beat the Bulls, the Kings, the Hornets, the Hawks, and the Cavs. And, I mean, the Kings have been playing some really good basketball, and the Cavs are one of the better teams in the NBA right now. So just a really good stretch from this team. They also dominated the Hawks whenever they played them. I know the Hawks are struggling. I was just talking about them. but And then the Bulls, they scrapped out an overtime win. Like, this is just winning stuff. And they have a 101.2 defensive rating in that span. That's awesome. That's, like, top of the league. Um, or towards top of the league. Um, Julius Randle in this stretch has averaged 29 points, 11 rebounds, and four assists. And he has not been in the minus, in the plus minus category in any of these five games. I uh, just want to give a shout out to the Knicks, now sixth in the East out of playing territory, two games above 500. Been a fun story considering everybody was kind of having them on the level of mediocrity. Maybe they still end up being on the level of mediocrity, but been really cool to see them put together this win streak and kind of get some things going. Um, My second stock riser is probably the biggest stock riser in the NBA this season so far, and that's the Memphis Grizzlies. This team has won seven in a row. They're first in the Western Conference after the Pelicans lost last night. They're still without Desmond Bain, who they've been out. He's been out for weeks. Uh, they did get Jaron Jackson Jr. back. He's played in 12 games. They are 9-3 and three in the games that Jaron Jackson Jr. has played in. They also were really struggling on the defensive end. Not anymore with Jaron Jackson Jr. back. This is one of the league's best defenders. They have the number one defense in the entire NBA since he came back. 
I just think, you know, this team is coming off a 40-point win against the Bucks last night, who, who has been a top-two team in the NBA. I know they didn't have Drew Holiday, but come on, man. Memphis was missing Desmond Bain as well. So, you know, it's worth mentioning. Like, I get it. No Drew, but no Bain. So, and Bain's averaging 25 a game right now and one of the best shooters in basketball. So, this team is just showing that they're good. They're going to be good for a long time. And who knows what would have happened last year if they didn't go through Steven Adams getting COVID in the Warrior Series and then John Morant getting hurt in game three. I don't know. That's in the past. But this team is sure a force to be reckoned with coming in the season, especially since Jaron Jackson Jr. has been back. There's no telling how good they're going to be once Desmond Bain gets back as well. They're probably, in my opinion, a lock to be a top three seed just going off trajectory right now and getting Desmond Bain back soon. It's going to be fun, man. It, they're a fun team. They they play fun. They play fast. They're very dynamic. They've got depth. They're young. they got a lot of energy. They're, they're my biggest stock riser here this week. And lastly, just a little footnote here before I get into the conversations with both Sam and Rob. Sam, this conversation with Sam about the Lakers is first. Me and Sam kind of talked about what could be some possibilities as we get closer to the January 15th deadline and then the trade deadline or not January 15th deadline, but people that sign like restricted free agents that sign extensions stuff, they're trade eligible on the 15th. That's whenever every player in the league is trade eligible, unless they signed a, you know, those big contracts where they can't be traded, can't be traded all season. But uh, then towards the trade deadline, we talk about some of their options, but there was a report yesterday from the athletic first from Sam Amick, basically saying that the Lakers, aren't as inclined to trade Russell Westbrook because of how much better he's been off the bench. I think that's kind of crazy. Me personally, I don't like having $47 million of my cap sheet coming off the bench and not being able to close out every single game. Um, Darvin Ham has closed some games with Westbrook, not closed other games with Westbrook. I don't know. I just, I'm not a fan of having one player worth $47 million doing all that. I would try to do whatever to move him at that point. But then uh, Jovan Buha of The Athletic comes out and says that although Amex reporting is obviously accurate, they are not just shutting the door on a Westbrook trade. So we'll see what happens. But guys, getting straight into it first with Sam, second with Rob, two great conversations. You guys are going to love it. So get straight into it for Sam. Now I'd like to welcome in Sam Quinn from CBS Sports. Uh, Sam is a NBA reporter for CBS who has previously worked with 24-7 Sports and Bleacher Report. Sam, glad to have you on, man. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've seen some of Sam's stuff uh, for a while now, and I just hit him up and luckily was able to get in touch with him and able to work this out pretty quickly. So, yeah, uh, looking forward to it. Um Sam is here to talk about Lakers with us today. Um, a pretty interesting team, to say the least. Interesting is, I guess, a word that we <laughs> could use. Um, I might go with something like exhausting, um, torturous. You know, when your day-to-day existence is this team, I'm sure it's interesting from the outside. It's, it's something else from the inside. <laughs> <laughs> for sure so they had a game the other night against the boston celtics um they were you know 
pretty much the Celtics were in, were in control for the majority of the game. Celtics start to, I mean, the Lakers start to get some momentum at the end of the third, uh, especially during the middle of the fourth, and then just kind of collapse uh, at the end for the Celtics to come back, force overtime. Jason Tatum hits a nasty shot to go to overtime. And then from that point, Celtics kind of take control as it goes and they end up winning the game. And this team is now 11-16, and 16, uh, sitting at 12th in the Western Conference, 2.5 games from last place in the entire conference. And, you know, with an upcoming schedule, the, up, the upcoming schedule, next five games is kind of friendly overall. And I, I do think it is a little you could be a little bit optimistic because they took advantage of an easy schedule in the past two, two and a half weeks. So considering that they have the Nuggets, but then they have the Wizards, who's probably in the, in the last last 10 games, that stretch the Wizards are probably the worst team in the league. One of the worst. And the last time the Lakers saw the Wizards, Anthony Davis did things to them that I don't think that they've forgotten. Yeah, uh, fifty-five points and like seventeen rebounds for if you didn't, if you guys didn't know, uh, that's what Sam's referring to. They got at the Suns. Suns are in a losing stretch right now. Devin Booker's out. I don't know if he'll be back or not. Um, at the Kings, Kings have been playing pretty good, but still not very good defense. So, so pretty susceptible to a loss any night. And then the Hornets, who have the worst record in the NBA. Uh, do you think that they could maybe get closer to 500 again like they were before in this stretch coming forward? You know, it's frustrating because, I mean, I hate to harp on this so early in the podcast, but if you just look at their late game free throw shooting over the last, you know, two weeks or so, there was the Indiana game that obviously everybody remembers Andrew Nembhard making the three-pointer to win at the buzzer. Anthony Davis misses a free throw with 43 seconds left that would have sent that game to overtime. The Philly game, obviously, Anthony Davis misses the free throw that would have won the game at the end of regulation, misses two against Boston the other night. They'd be 500 right now if those free throws had gone in. So if you just wanted to ask me purely, like, are they a 500 caliber basketball team? My instinct is yes. The problem is this team really gets in its own way in a lot of very correctable ways. I mean, the Patrick Beverly starting lineup makes absolutely no sense whatsoever at this stage. Like, you know, we saw these, the rumor, I think it was yesterday from Jake Fisher, who said that Patrick Beverly wants to go back to Minnesota. And I don't think anybody in LA is thinking, no, no, Patrick, please stay. Um, <laughs> I, I think if they can just tweak the lineups, no more Westbrook closing, no more Beverly starting, maybe chill with some of the three guard stuff. You know, ideally, you want to find Anthony Davis and LeBron James some more rest throughout the game, because I think what happened in the Boston game was Anthony Davis played the entire second half and all of overtime. He was just dead by the end of the game. Like, no wonder he missed the free throws. You've got to find some more rest for those guys. The problem is the roster isn't currently equipped for it. But generally, like, they've got some easy games coming up. I think they could take, you know, get a little bit closer, take three or four out of the next five. But ultimately, we're in a position where the roster isn't equipped to support Anthony Davis and LeBron James in the way that they're, you know, that they need it to. And as long as that's the case, we're going to see a lot more dumb losses like we've seen over the last couple weeks and really all season. Yeah. And I I think it's funny that you bring that up because I remember a quote and I've seen it been brought up on Twitter by a good amount of people from Darvin Ham before the season saying that, in you know October, November, December, we don't need LeBron and Anthony Davis playing playoff minutes. Well, if you don't play on playoff minutes, 
You're getting beat like a drum right now. <laughs> if you don't play them playoff minutes, you're they're not going to be playing playoff minutes in April because yeah. they're going to be at home. It's that simple. <laughs> it's it's a lot, man. And so I just want to go over some of the stuff that you know is going on right now. Uh, they're 21st in offense, but they are act- and this this is all per cleaning the glass. 21st in offense, but they're eighth in the last two weeks. Um, you would think. Hey, yeah, they've been doing better, and they have a little bit, but their 18th overall in defense have been have been 24th in the last two weeks. Um, I don't really want to talk about their defense as much um, because they struggle really offensively, and a lot of teams are just getting a lot of stuff coming off of like their live rebounds and whenever the Lakers turn the ball over. But they're not really creating enough havoc defensively, in my opinion. They're 29th in turnover rate defensively. And I feel like whenever I, you know, I went and like this is the games that I've watched and some of the stuff I watched before we hopped on this pod, it just feels like there's not enough aggression on that end. Like teams are kind of getting into whatever they want or not feeling real pressure aside by at the rim by Anthony Davis. And so I just feel like that's probably part of why their defense is not as successful as they were seeing early, early in the season. Uh, do you think that that has any kind of correlation? What What do you think there might be going on with their defense? Just kind of before I go into my offensive rant about this team. Yeah, I mean, the trouble defensively more than anything is that they're so small, right? I mean, yeah. they won a championship in 2020 with, I mean, we obviously, we can talk about JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard and, you know, playing Davis at the four and LeBron at the three, but just go down and look at like KCP was the nominal point guard a lot of the time. I think he's 6'5 or 6'6". Six, six. Alex Caruso, 6'5 or 6'6". Avery Bradley was the only kind of smaller, shorter guy on that team, but he was really long and he made up for it in other ways. Look at the size of the guys who are playing, particularly in the backcourt for the Lakers. Like Dennis Schroeder, small guy, doesn't have long arms. Russell Westbrook, like pretty short. He has other athletic gifts, not super big. You know, like Austin Reeves, not super long. You know, you go up and down the list. These guys are athletic, but they're so small that they're so frequently overmatched against these bigger teams that there's just not really much that they can do. And schematically, like their only hope right now is they play mostly drop coverage because all you can really do is funnel guys into Anthony Davis and hope that Davis stops them because, you know, nobody else on the team is really that great defensively. Like even LeBron, he can key in for a couple of possessions, but like you watch it on like random possession X in the third quarter. It's not great. You know, he's lost a lot of lateral quickness. He obviously doesn't expend as much energy on that end of the floor as he used to. You know, he's he frankly is mostly a help defender at this stage of his career. So after Davis, like you go up and down the roster, who's the second best defender on the team? I don't have a good answer. Like there are nights where it's Dennis Schroeder. When Dennis is really engaged, he can be a really menacing defender. Austin Reeves is better than I think a lot of people expected. Russell Westbrook has the, you know, the the steals, the highlight plays, he'll make two or three. Like we saw in the Boston game, he had a couple of huge blocks, but like he's another guy who, if you just watch him on a random possession, you have no clue what you're going to get. So it's a combination of size and frankly, just the stature of the guys in the building, because so many of the guys on that team are so focused on what am I going to do when I have the ball in my hands that they're not really defensively focused. And Darvin Ham milked some good defense out of them early in the season. Now we're starting to see the limitations play out. If they're going to keep playing a rotation that's like 60% small guards, there's just not much else you can do. Yeah, and 
I liked that you made the point early about them being small. And I, I remember something from early in the year of like when the when the Lakers acquired Patrick Beverly and he was referred to as like a three and D wing. And I was like, what? Like, now, 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 don't get me wrong. Pat Bev has historically been a really good defender and has been a way better three point shooter than he gets credit for. But I was like, you're calling this a three and D wing. And he's like a six foot six one guard. I'll give I'll give Patrick Beverly credit for this. He's always, at least until he got to the Lakers, he's always defended better than his height. And that like he yes. defended Kevin Durant in a playoff series. And like everyone gave him a lot of credit for that, ignoring the fact that I think KD scored 50 twice in that series. <laughs> uh he's defended LeBron in the past. Like he's taken the challenge of defending guys that are way bigger than him. That doesn't mean that it's ideal. Um, like the best defense he's ever, I don't want to say ever played, but like, I think the de- best defensive series he ever played was the Western Conference Finals against yes. the Suns, yeah. where he gave Devin Booker all these problems. That that was the best version of him when he's hounding a guard. If you need him defending forwards, you're going to run into some issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. And um, yeah, and you know, you, you bring up the stuff about LeBron and it's totally true, but it's like, he also shouldn't have to be doing the like as much as people probably want out of him right now because he's in year 20 like it's a fair point like he's got so many miles so many minutes like the, a team should be constructed well enough around him to where he shouldn't have to be going balls to the wall 99 percent of the time every game on the defensive end no i don't want to keep harping on the 2020 thing but like you look at the way that they play defense this it was usually dwight or javel as like the quote-unquote rim protector Davis was more like the Giannis role where he's blowing stuff up and covering ground. And, you know, like it's not as much right at the basket. It's more, I'm going to take half of the court and make it much harder for you to do what you want to do. And what they did with LeBron was they would stash him in the corner on the worst shooter and just say, you are calling out the coverages. You are hopping passing lanes. You are playing help defense and we're not going to strain you. Well, their options now are you can do that, but the man defense everywhere else on the floor, especially without Davis as much of a roamer, is going to be so much worse that it's not going to be very helpful. Or we can put you on, you know, a high usage ball handler, but A, you're not fast enough laterally to stay in front of those guys as consistently as you used to. And B, if you try, you're going to waste all this energy that you then can't save for offense which is what the Lakers really need out of him. Cause I mean, look, they have a million quote unquote ball handlers. LeBron <laughs> is the only one that's like a really consistent all over the court score, shot creator, playmaker, right? Like you need him to use some inordinate percentage of your offensive possessions. And he can't do that. If he's playing man defense on like, I don't know, I'll just insert, you know, Jason Tatum, yeah. Kevin Durant, that caliber of guy. Agreed. So it just keeps going back to the roster. And like, I have been harping on the Indiana trade for as far back as the rumors existed. And I just look at this and I think if they had miles Turner right now, all of a sudden your defense makes a whole lot more sense because he can do the rim protecting stuff. Let Davis play in more of that, you know, off ball Rover kind of position. And then Dave, and then LeBron can go back to playing help defense, not having to worry as much. And your rim defense with Davis and Turner gets so good that you can make up for the weaknesses at the guard spot. So I've been harping on that trade for months now. I frankly yeah. don't have any hope that it's ever going to get done. 
<laughs> but I mean, look, with the roster the way it is right now, like there just isn't much more that Darvin Ham could do. No. I would quibble with a few of his rotation choices. Like, frankly, like I don't know. Like, can they even trade Beverly? I mean, I, Patrick Beverly's expiring contract. Yeah. They can trade him. I don't know how much more basketball Patrick Beverly has in him because, like, right now he might be the worst rotation player on the team. You know, I don't know why he's still getting minutes. I don't know why Kendrick Dunn is getting minutes. But as far as the defensive scheme goes, the roster is just not doing Darvin Ham any favors here. There's not much he can do with it. Yeah, I think one of the things for Pat Bev right now is that, like, there's still small spurts where it's, like, gets an offensive rebound, like, gets a loose ball. And it's, like, especially, like, they kind of need those things, especially when they don't really have many other options anyway. Or it's, like, even if Pat Bev's not in, it's, like, for the most part, what are you really getting out of some guys? So I guess that might be, like, the thought process of it. But um, I'm glad you brought up the Miles Turner thing. I want to get to that later. Now I want to kind of dive into the Lakers' offense right now. Um, Like I said, they're 21st overall, but they're eighth in the last two weeks. Um, You know, some things that I took note of is that they're ninth in turnover rate and they're fourth in free throw rate. And so I was like, okay. And then I kept looking. They're first at getting to the rim in terms of frequency, and they're sixth at rim field goal percentage. So then I'm already knowing what the problem is and why it's going to be as bad as it is. It's just the shooting, man. Like, like if you take a team that is doing what they're doing and the things I was just telling you and is a league average three-point shooting team, that's a top-10 offense. But they're no – I mean, Frank, let's – it's the formula for a top five offense, if we're being honest, right? Like, yeah, yeah. As, as important top- as shooting is, if you're getting to the rim, your baseline is so high that it's really hard not to be a great offense. Yeah, and so, like, you know, the, the problem is that they're nowhere near league average. They're 25th in mid-range, and that's not that big of a deal. I mean, it, it is whenever you're in more of, like, a playoff setting, but in the regular season, just for regular season success, that's not as big of a concern. It's the fact that they're 29th and three-point field goal percentage. And, you know, they're already well below league average and three-pointers. But, like, it would be one thing if they were below average and above the break threes. Like, it would not be desired, but it's cool, whatever. But they're 31.7% in the corners, and the average three-point percentage in the corners, according to Clean the Glass, is 38.3% by teams. So way, way under league average in corner threes. And when you've got an offense that is based around guys like LeBron, Anthony Davis, and a lot of people's roles offensively, not like full role, but like you're going to be getting a lot of catch and shoot corner threes. You got to hit them at a way higher clip than that. And they actually only have two guys on the team that are shooting above league average from three that are in the rotation right now. Take a guess who they are. If You might know them already. Above average from three? Yeah, I think it's Lonnie is one. He is. Um, cause he he had a very hot start. He slowed down for a little bit, and then he got back on. I know Austin Reeves has had a cold stretch. I would guess he's the other. You're right. He he has had a, a cold stretch, but he is still. He above. was fifty forty ninety for a minute there. I don't know yeah. where he is now, but it's it's been colder. But I would have yeah, he's still above league average. Yeah. So I. I didn't realize that he was closer to hovering right around league average because, I mean, I guess I guess it makes sense because in the games I've been watching recently, it's like he's not been hitting as much. But still, like, 
I just remember seeing that he was a 50-40-90 guy, so I was kind of surprised to see that he was just about right up. So he's he's like right above league average right now. And Lonnie's shooting just under 40%. Um, I'll just go ahead and say it up front. I didn't expect that to be the case with Lonnie at all this season. I, mean, I don't maybe, think anybody did. Yeah, maybe it's not going to keep up. But, I mean, he's working his way into maybe getting a nice little pay. Can he opt out this summer? Is it a, is it a one plus yeah. one? So yeah, it's a one. It's I, I believe it's just a straight one year contract, oh, okay. and it was the tax mid level. So if the Lakers want to resign him using rights, the non bird number would be around ten million. Of course, if the Lakers want to use cap space, he's probably gone. But then yeah. the other side of it is somebody could offer him the full mid level, and that's going to be more than the non bird number. So we might just be looking at Malik Monk two point here, where the Lakers found somebody that the league had missed on. They have him for a year, a year that, by the way, looks kind of inconsequential at the moment. Now, maybe they change that with a trade. Maybe they don't. And then they lose him at the end of the year for nothing. Mm. So great, great job by the front office there. (laughs) And man, like it is kind of crazy about that. Like you say, Malik Monk 2.0, because Lonnie has been a bright spot for the team overall. And that that was Malik Monk last year. And like you look at Malik Monk with Sacramento right now, he's been great for them. And you're just kind of like, what What could a guy like Malik Monk be doing on this Lakers team right now? He'd help them a lot. I mean, Mal- I mean, I understand losing Malik Monk in the way that they did. Yeah. Because Malik Monk taking a minimum contract in the first place was frankly surprising. So if you could only get him for one year, mm-hmm. it, was a, it made sense on both sides. The Lakers needed an upside guy. Mal- Malik needed to rebuild his value a little bit. It worked. It made sense for both sides. I look at the Lonnie situation and you just look at the reaction after he signed that contract where so many people were out here saying like worst mid-level signing. How could the Lakers (laughs) do this? Yada, yada, yada. And like, look, don't get me wrong. He's, he's proven them wrong at the time. It came from a pretty truthful place. Lonnie Walker did not play particularly well in San Antonio last year. It was pretty clear that the Spurs didn't want him back. They didn't keep his restricted rights. He was unrestricted. That's how the Lakers got him. So I'm a little confused at how they didn't lock him up for more than one year. And aside from the fact that, you know, they should have had the leverage to do it. Mm -hmm. I think they just have to realize that when you're, when you have three star players making max contracts, you have to stack mid-level guys just as salaries for trades as Mm -hmm. role players. Like this is what the heat did by the way, where they never got rid of their mid-level guys. It was never one year deals. They stacked them over and over and over again. That's how you end up with Mike Miller and Ray Allen and Shane Battier when you're paying three guys max contracts. So it was really questionable decision-making from the Lakers not to get Lonnie for more than a year. I'm sure Clutch preferred the one-year setup, and I'm sure the Lakers were thinking at the time, okay, we'll preserve our tax – or we'll, prefer, we'll preserve our cap space. I said tax money because, I mean, look, the real answer here, and people don't really want to hear it, is that a lot of what the Lakers are doing can be pretty easily explained if you just assume that they don't want to pay the repeater tax next year. And all of a sudden, losing Lonnie makes a lot more sense. So, look, that might just be why it is. But if you purely look from a utilitarian basketball perspective, there's no reason Lonnie shouldn't be on a two- or three-year deal right now. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense what you're saying. But, yeah, I just think it's weird. I I don't want to get into this too much because it's not really – 
something I want to converse about because I get I mean I'm not even a Lakers fan at all and I get kind of frustrated talking about their front office and like management and stuff but why are you as the owner of the Los Angeles Lakers probably the most valued if not if not the most valued franchise the second most behind like the Knicks or something why are you so worried about money especially in the it's, time it's a very you- complicated situation yeah I will try my best to offer some insight here and I'll 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 I'm trying to couch this because, A, there are things that I can't really say, and B, there there are just a lot of things that I don't know. But the short answer I can give is that there are kind of two waves of NBA owners. There are the new guys, like Steve Ballmer, who has $50 billion, and this is essentially like, this is essentially like, you know, like a guy who buys a party house. Yeah. He says, like, I'll spend, I'll throw all my money in here, this is where I'll have my fun, and then my business is something separate. Steve Ballmer could lose a billion dollars a year on the Clippers and just wouldn't care. Yeah. The Lakeups are not quite that, you know, extreme about it, but the, Joe Lakeup has more than enough money to continue throwing money into the Warriors. Joe Sy with the Nets, you know, there's a newer wave with owner, of owners that are like this, that don't view the NBA purely through the prism of, can we make a profit? Then there's the older guard. There are the people like, you know, Herb Simon in Indiana you know, look through guys who, you know, you've heard for a lo- you've heard it for a long time, have been owning the team for a long time. The bus family comes from that, that sec. They've owned the team since I think 1980 and they didn't, they, they didn't build separate businesses in a way that have sustained into 2022. The Lakers are the financial engine that powers the bus family. That is where their lifestyle is paid for. That is Basically, they don't have Microsoft money like Steve Ballmer does. So they tend to be a bit more frugal in the way that they run the team. Now, that doesn't mean that they're cheap. I think there's an important distinction there. They are still paying luxury tax. This is the third third year in a row. But when you look at their revenue, they frankly should be spending a lot more than they do, right? You know, the Lakers make $150 million in local TV revenue annually. That's not national money. That's not gate revenue. That's local TV money, which is significantly higher than pretty much any other team in the NBA. So if you look at the revenue perspective, the Lakers should be spending a lot more money. They cheap out in a lot of ways behind the scenes. They're known for having a very small support staff, very small scouting staff. There's been a rumor going around lately that they don't have a pro personnel scouting staff. Mm-hmm. I, I can't speak. I can't verify that, but yeah. that's been going around Twitter lately. Um, it's pretty well known the Lakers are really happy to pay for front-facing people. They love having stars on their team, whether it's players like LeBron, go back, Kobe, Shaq, et cetera, et cetera, or coaches. They love having famous coaches. Phil Jackson, multiple tenures. You know, Pat Riley was very highly paid when he coached the team. Even when you go through their coaching searches, you're almost always looking. I mean, Darvin Ham was really the exception. You're almost always looking at guys who have succeeded elsewhere and are commanding pretty big contracts. It's the behind the scenes stuff that they tend to get caught up with. And just frankly, like, look, I'm not going to comment on the bus family's net worth. It just doesn't seem like they have the sort of wealth that would allow them to compete financially with Steve Ballmer, Joe Lakeup, or Joe Sy. I think that's the case. I personally would argue that if you're the bus family, you have by and large had a very successful tenure for 40 years running the Lakers. It should be pretty clear to them at this stage if they can't operate the Lakers in the way that the Lakers deserve to be operated, they should just take their seven, eight, nine billion dollar payout 
and give it to the Dodgers guys or whoever else will pay yeah, that much I agree. and let them run the team as, as they should. But the bus family does not seem interested in doing that, or at least the few bus family members that are still in control and still really operate and run the Lakers. So that's a conversation for another day, but that is essentially what's going on here. The bus family simply does not have the wealth that Steve Ballmer does. And that's why the, ironically, the Lakers, the big glitzy Los Angeles franchise are run kind of like a family business. And the Clippers who are the little brother are throwing money around left and right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I want to hop back to some, uh, some of the other offense stuff, but I, I'm glad you said that because that we got very far off course. Hey, let's go back to the basketball. It's all, it's all good though. It's all good though. That, that happens. Um, you know, some other stuff to the offense is like they're not really creating extra possessions because they're 24th in offensive rebound percentage, which you know that's kind of as expected when you go up and down the roster. Um, and then there's this this part eats me alive because when I watch them, this is what like frustrates me more than anything. They're sixth in transition frequency, but they're only 26th in transition efficiency. So if you wanted to like ask me like, hey, why are they so bad in transition? I think my opinion, I think they try to get out in transition a little too much, even when nothing is there. And I just think it's like they almost I, – I know Darvin Ham is like emphasized, like we're going to get out and run, we're going to get out and run, we're going to get out and run. But they're just not good at it. And like every game I'm just like, why did, Why are we pushing it up the fl- – well, not – I mean, not we. I'm just speaking in terms of like the Lakers. Like why are they pushing it up the floor and just trying their best to put up a shot with like 17 seconds left on the shot clock? And I get it, the half-court offense – it's actually not as bad as you would think whenever you go look at it, but like I get it. They don't have a lot of options, but they're just not good in transition. So it eats me, it eats me alive whenever I'm watching them and I'm like, why do they keep running? Why do they keep running? So it's a few things. I mean, number one, obviously you've said it. Their shooting is so bad that the half court offense is so limited that they do seek out transition opportunities whenever possible. They've also really changed the way that they've played transition offense since Frank Vogel was the coach. This was, I mean, look, you can argue with Frank Vogel's dedication to bigger lineups. It ultimately is roster dependent. But one of the advantages of Anthony Davis playing power forward so much is that Frank Vogel would frequently just have him go down the floor on any shot. And then when it was missed, JaVale or Dwight or LeBron or whoever would get the rebound and they would do a hit-ahead pass to Davis for a one-on-one post-up against whatever small guy had made it down the court in time. And that was a real big source of transition offense for the Lakers. Well, they can't do that. And people wonder why is Anthony Davis averaging 15 rebounds now or whatever it is? Well, he's not doing that anymore. He's crashing the boards. He's traded his transition offense for rebounds because that's what this team needs. I think LeBron, it's funny. I think LeBron is second in fast break points in the NBA. Yet, I think it's pretty clear. Maybe it happened last year, but I think it's pretty clear at this point. He's not the same runaway freight train that he used to be. He is sort of, I don't want to say forcing it, but you can really tell that he is way more eager to take the layup or the dunk himself now than he maybe was a few years ago when he was more balanced as far as distributing goes. Because if you look at the tracking data, his drives, at least in the half court, are way down. He's not getting to the basket as frequently as he used to. So he's making up those points in transition Whenever he gets an opportunity in transition, he is going to the basket. 
So I think that's where a lot of the points per game skewed numbers are coming from, where LeBron is averaging the same numbers that he was, you know, a few years ago. He's not he's not the same guy in the same way that like I look at the ringer did their top 100 NBA players yesterday. I saw they had LeBron at number nine and I think John Morant was number 10. I can't remember exactly, but like their quote unquote strengths are playmaking and transition offense. At least those are the big ones right now. John Morant has a pretty sizable lead in both. So (laughs) it's funny. I've now covered LeBron's entire tenure with the Lakers when he got there in 2019, 2018, he was pretty clearly the best player in the league. And you've seen just a little bit of a slip every year since. They win the title, 2020. He's the best player, but it's debatable. You know, Durant's out. You know, Kawhi, for a lot of that year, people thought he was. He's the MVP front runner until he gets hurt the next year. But it was pretty clear at that point that, you know, Jokic and Embiid were doing more. LeBron was kind of a narrative push. He's like a top five player that year, and then he gets hurt. Last year, he competes for the scoring title, but... It's, it's clear LeBron isn't LeBron anymore. And now all of a sudden, you know, I it, it's funny. There was all this talk a few years ago that, like, do the Lakers have two megastars? Do they have, like, one megastar in LeBron and one sort of just like an all-star in AD? Well, now it's sort of the reverse, right, where Anthony Davis is the guy. Whatever the top, top tier is, Davis is there. LeBron's still an all-star. He still does a lot of very, very good things. But he's not LeBron James, the guy who guarantees you a top five offense just by his presence. So it's different now. And frankly, with the roster they have, it's going to be very hard to compensate. Maybe he'd be driving more if he had more space. But for now, LeBron is like the way he's getting his points. It's not in the sort of standard spread pick and roll attack the basket the way that he used to. It's a lot of post ups. It's a lot of turnaround jumpers. It's a lot of pull up threes. Yeah. It's just not the sort of offense that you typically see out of LeBron James. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. And I think it's funny that you say that about how they've kind of flipped because I like when you hear the press conference at the beginning of the season, it's like this is what they wanted like two years ago. And it's like finally coming. And LeBron's wanted this for actually quite a bit longer. Yeah. When he was in Cleveland, he was saying, Kyrie, I want you to be the guy. Right. And then it just never happened. That's true. Um and I'm glad you. I'm glad that you brought up the point about LeBron not getting the rim as much in the half court. I actually a few weeks ago, um, I saw because I, I, I have a subscription to Basketball Index or BballIndex.com, and and I was looking at some things, and I don't know if it's still like the same number, but I'm sure it's not far off. He was averaging like just over four drives per 75 possessions, which was like super low compared to normal LeBron rates. And like yeah, the tracking yeah. numbers on NBA.com, his drives have been cut in half in the last three years, I think. Yeah, and it's like, forget the numbers. Like, you know when you watch him. Like, you're like, this isn't the same. Like, like you could you could tell that regardless if you had numbers in front of your face or not. And, um, and I, I'm glad you said that about AD, too, uh, about how, like, you know, he's under the rim getting more rebounds. Because when you look, like I was looking, like, last night whenever I'm preparing everything – Anthony Davis still is still one of the best players in transition when he's actually out in transition. It's just a matter of it's not as much um, with you saying that he's under the basket getting the rebounds and not being able to run out like he would uh, with their like team that won the championship and stuff. So it's just, it's all interesting stuff to look at, man. There's just so many problems. Um, 
Did you picture this team being in this type of position, though, right now? I think if you would have told me before the season, after 27 games, this team is going to be 11-16, and 16, I would have said, yeah, that's about right. I did not picture the highs and lows in the <laughs> way that they've been. I I knew the opening schedule was very, very difficult. Oh, yeah. I thought 2-10 and 10 was a little ridiculous, sort of like major, major injuries. I did not see them beating the Bucks on the road with, you know, everybody at full strength. Yeah. I did not. I mean, the Celtics game is a podcast in itself, but I did not see the incredible comeback against the Celtics coming. Like this team at the bet at the best of times, this team came a couple of free throws away from beating the two best teams in the NBA. Yeah. But this team also has a two and 10 stretch. There is clearly something pretty good in here somewhere. Like the problem here is, LeBron and AD can only put out so many fires. Ultimately, there have to be a couple more reliable guys, and I don't even think it has to be that many. I think Lonnie has proven he's a starting caliber player. I think Austin Reeves has proven he's a starting caliber player. Dennis is probably rotation caliber. Thomas Bryant can give you 10 backup center minutes tonight. You fill in, like, two or three more guys, and I think suddenly you've got a shot, especially given how weak the West is. You know, right now, I mean, Steph got hurt last night. Nobody in the West has really stood out. The Western Conference is totally winnable. And look, I don't know, I don't want to talk about a finals matchup with this team, but I know they're not scared of the Bucs. They've played the Bucs very well over the last several years. Yeah. And Boston, I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I think Boston's the best team in the NBA. We've kind of seen that their historic offense still has a lot of the same deficiencies it had last year. You know, the ball handling is still not quite what it, what you'd hope it would be. It's still very jump shooting reliant. Now Jason Tatum's gotten better and Malcolm Brogdon has helped in those areas, but I'll put it this way. I don't think the Celtics are going to average 120 points per hundred possessions in the playoffs. Like I think their offense is going to be tested and I think they're beatable. They're the best team, but I think they're beatable. I I think that's the way that the Lakers should be looking at this. Yeah. Everybody's beatable for Boston though. I think it's like the thought of how much better the defense gets once Rob is back. True. Yeah. I mean, look, I'll put it this way. Boston is, what, 21-7 and right now? Something like that. If you told me they stayed healthy and they went, like, 50-8 and the rest of the way, I wouldn't be, like, overly surprised by that. I I don't know what the numbers are. Like, if you told me Boston won 63 games this year, I'd, I'd be a little skeptical, but I'd ultimately say, like, they're good enough. And what they were at the end of the regular season last year, too, suggests that's about right. So Boston might run away with this thing. But right now, as we look at the NBA on December 15th, I think that the NBA, like, there is no unbeatable team. There is nobody the Lakers should be looking at and saying, we cannot beat this team without the right moves, or with the right moves, rather. So I hope that they go out and they do something, because otherwise, I just don't know what you're doing. If you have Anthony Davis playing the way that he is, and LeBron, you know, we've said, taking a step back, but still very, very good. Yeah. You've got two all-stars. How many teams have two all-stars? Exactly. Don't waste it. The way that I put this frequently is how many teams right now, like, look at how many teams have never won a championship. The Magic, the Nets, the Pacers, whoever. If If one of those teams had LeBron and Anthony Davis, no matter what else, they'd be thinking, this is our chance to get that first championship. We'll give up however many picks it takes to make it work. The Lakers aren't thinking that way. I think they're a little spoiled by the 17 championships. I think they assume like, oh, we can just, you know, make it work after the fact. But 
I got to say, like, there's an opportunity here. Please go take it. I totally agree that there's something good here. Um, And I think that what it comes down to, and you've kind of hinted at it, is that the best way I'm going to put it without sparking too much controversy here is that at worst, you have two guys that are all-star or all-NBA caliber guys here that just are simply surrounded by incompetent talent overall. And, you know, just to kind of highlight it a little bit, like right now, LeBron is averaging just under 27 points per game, just under nine rebounds and right at six and a half assists on 48, 32, 71 splits. Obviously a little bit to be desired um, from three and it's typical LeBron from the free throw line, but like 27 a game on 48% shooting. Can't ask for a whole lot better than that. And we've touched on him not getting the rim as much. He is opposed to last year where he took eight threes a game. This would be the highest in his career at seven and a half threes a game. It's a little much, but yeah, he's lost a step. Cool, whatever. Still scoring at a very efficient rate overall and at a high volume. Um, And Anthony Davis is putting up 28, 12, just under three assists. The defense has been monstrous, putting up about 3.5 stocks per game, stock their steals and blocks together, shooting 59% from the field, 29% from three. I don't really care about the threes, man. He's not taking as much. Like, he's just dominating inside. And 82% from the free throw line, which is good to see from him. He's ninety. He's in the 94th percentile in just an offensive efficiency in general. This is per synergy um, at 1.205 points per possession. He's in the 93rd percentile rim efficiency. And when you've got two guys who are just playing that good, it's just kind of wild to sit back and think like they're two and a half games from the worst record in the conference. It takes a special kind of bad management to get there. You know, it's funny. I mean, I think it was right after the first game of the year, I was listening to Kevin O'Connor on a podcast and he was trying to figure out like how this happened and he threw out the theory. It's like, basically, there are two options. Either Rob Polinka is the worst general manager in basketball, or Rob Polinka is trying to sabotage the team. <laughs> and we're at a point where he's done such a bad job over the last couple of years that, like, we can talk about sabotage as a genuine possibility. And, like, look, I, I kind of get it. There, there might be parts of that organization that are sitting here thinking we could give up two first-round picks for – a 5%, 10% chance to win a title, or we could force LeBron and AD out, trade them both in the offseason for a bunch of stuff, and then try to rebuild on our own terms after that. I frankly disagree with that logic and think if you have LeBron and AD, the time to go for it is now. But, like, they've been, they've done such a bad job putting the right team around these guys that sabotage almost makes more sense than incompetence, right? Like, I mean, generally speaking, I know we're supposed to, what, what's the phrase? Never assume malice when it could be more easily explained by stupidity. I know we're not supposed to assume sabotage, but like, I'd be lying if I said I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, it's, I just don't understand it because to me, you're a team that like, you don't own the rights to your draft pick. So like, what's the hesitancy to immediately improve in any capacity. Like how, you know, we've already touched on it a little bit, like the Indiana trade was available. I get it. It's their only two assets, really, the two first-round picks. Like the, they don't have anything else. So you kind you do, in a sense, have to use them wisely. But, like, 
you just you have two guys who Anthony Davis is not young by any means. He's not old though. LeBron is, I mean, thirty-eight, I think, or something like that. It's year twenty. You don't you don't have the luxury of just sitting and waiting. And so I guess my question is like, what's the holdup on any kind of move at this point, even like a small one? And I know today is the day where Woj actually just tweeted out 88% of players are now eligible to be traded today. So part of I want to push back on this slightly. Okay. That you're making an important point that technically, yes, December 15th is when most players who sign for agent contracts this offseason are available to be traded. This is a point that Anthony Irwin from Silver Screen and Roll made, and I'm jealous that it didn't cross my mind first. How many players that the Lakers have been linked to on the trade market were free agents last summer? Can you name one? Because Miles Turner wasn't. Buddy Heald wasn't. Boyan Bogdanovich wasn't. Cam Reddish wasn't. Evan Fournier wasn't. Go down the list. (laughs) None of them were were free agents on December last offseason. Therefore, none of them needed to wait until December 15th to become available. That December 15th date, Fugazi. It was a a fairy tale. It was something the Lakers put out there to quote-unquote appease the fan base and to get them off their backs. December 15th is here. None of those guys have been rewarded to the Lakers. Now, maybe the Lakers are operating in silence. Maybe there's a trade target we don't know about. I don't know. I'll give them a little bit of credit. Yeah. I think it's far more likely, and what I think is the case, is that the Lakers came into this season not intending to make any trade whatsoever. Anthony Davis is playing so well that he might force their hand. But I think they're waiting this out to see, can they kind of work their way out of this? Like, if they lose five in their next seven, maybe. Could the Lakers front office be like, oh, we thought about making a trade. We were this close. But no, they fell out of the running. So, yeah, we're not going to do it. So that, I think, is what really is going on here. I think they're looking for any excuse not to make a trade, but if Anthony Davis keeps playing this well and they keep winning, they're not going to have a choice. Yeah, I I agree. And I I guess the only thing that I could be like, well, I get why they waited till today is just to maybe like weigh the options. Like maybe he's been on the phone some, maybe he sees something that's potentially there. But yeah, I mean, I agree. Ultimately the names, I have never thought of it this way, but ultimately the names that have been linked, they could have done that whenever. So, and maybe maybe the argument from that point of view is the teams that could be trading these guys that these guys should be coming in are waiting till today to see what other options are out there for those guys that are looking at me move. I don't know. I I guess now for me especially is that like now you're on the clock because they're all available opposed to like everybody kept well, saying 15th, summer 15th. Not everyone's available. Now we have to wait for the January 15th (laughs) deadline where I think it's restricted free agents and a couple of guys are re-signed with bird rights. I don't quote me on this, but I think Zach Levine isn't available until January 15th. I might have to check that again. There are guys that, like last year, Taylor Horton Tucker, because of the way he signed, was not tradable until January 15th. So you're right. Woj said at 88%. It's 100% on January 15th. But of course, the way this is gone, wasn't the original deadline Thanksgiving? Wasn't it Thanksgiving, and then it was 20 games, and then it was December 15th? (laughs) Don't be surprised if we hear January 15th next. And then we hear the trade deadline. (laughs) And then this is my favorite fiction of all of them. The Lakers have decided to wait to use their cap space in the (laughs) offseason. Well, number one, there are no stars available. And number two, they couldn't get them even if there were – 
because the Lakers only have $30 million of cap space yeah. in a world in which the max is like 45. So I look forward to more reports about the timeline getting shifted. Yeah, so it, it is interesting. And I, I agree that I don't know where it's going to go. Okay, I'm going to hold off on what I was about to say real quick. I just want to shift towards the possibility of trades. Uh, Jovan Buhav, the athletic, um, shoot, I don't remember when it was. I don't remember if it was like a month, three weeks ago. Okay, he's, he's very good at what he does in his reporting. And he came out and basically said that from this day, December 15th, the Lakers had three kind of like approaches that they were taking towards this whole trade thing. And one – was like trade Russ and like a first or two. One was trade like the Pat Bev contract, the Kendrick Nunn contract, some minimum and either some second, like collection of seconds or a first and some seconds, not both first or anything. And then the other was kind of like maybe try to formulate around Russ and a first and then also trade like Nunn, Bev and uh, and some minimums and a first or some seconds or whatever, be able to make like two moves. What do you think is the most realistic approach of those three? Here's what I think is going to happen if things continue on their current trajectory where Anthony Davis is playing so well that, like, you don't have a choice. You're going to have to make a trade. What I think is going to happen is that they're going to trade Patrick Beverly and Kendrick Nunn and one first-round pick that will be protected for – I, it might be Bojan Bogdanovic. It might That's be who they else. need to go after. Right. It might be somebody in that that range. And they'll say, you know, like, okay, maybe we'll make another trade with Restbrook down the line if, if you guys keep winning. But with the protected first-round pick that they'd send out in that trade, well, people – I think the Lakers and a lot of the moves they make count on fans not really understanding the CBA. And the way that those first-round picks in 2027 and 2029 work – is they basically have to be unprotected because you're only allowed to trade draft picks that are seven years out. You mm-hmm. can't trade your 2030 first-round pick. Yeah. Therefore, if you try to protect your 2029 first-round pick and it doesn't go to the team in question, it doesn't roll over another year. It just vanishes. The mm-hmm. Lakers know this well because one of the picks they traded out in the Dwight Howard trade had this exact thing happen where it was top three protected. It was supposed to go to Orlando but the Lakers kept picking number two, so the Magic got nothing. <laughs> so I, I think that's something that is kind of looming here, where the Lakers might, you know, make, say, a top 15 protected or a top 10 protected lottery protected pick, plus, you know, none in Beverly for Bogdanovich, make the one trade, and then say, oh, maybe we'll make another one after that if you guys prove you deserve it. But in truth, once you've traded one protected pick, the other pick is off the table. You've essentially said we are forbidding ourselves from trading another one. So that's what I think is going to happen. I think it's going to be none Beverly and a protected pick for either one pretty high level role player or maybe two lighter guys at the 10 million range each. But ultimately, I think that's the most they're going to do. I think they will give away one protected first round pick. I don't think they will give away an unprotected pick. And I certainly don't think they're going to give away both. And if they do, We've seen the DeMar DeRozan rumors. We've seen the Nikola Vucevic rumors. I, I think they'd be interested in that sort of trade, but I think the holdup that a lot of people are not recognizing here is that the Lakers are not great at make, admitting that they've made mistakes. Yeah. And I think it would kind of be bad optics for them 
to go trade for DeMar DeRozan a year and a half after DeMar DeRozan <laughs> begged them to trade for him, and he still they still didn't do it. So that's kind of another thing that's hovering in the background here. I think that they don't want to give away two unprotected first-round picks. I don't think there's anything on the market that would convince them to do it. So I think we're going to get kind of a half-measure trade. And frankly, I think a half-measure doesn't make sense. My personal move would be two unprotected picks, go all in. If you're not going to do that, you might as well trade LeBron and AD. Because, look, there are no half-measures in the NBA. I like to say that you don't win championships by accident. Either you go for it or you don't. Because I promise you, if you don't go for it, there are five or six other teams that have done so, and they're going to beat you. I agree. Um, I I do think it would be kind of like funny slash ironic if some kind of DeRozan deal happened. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe we're just talking about it for no reason here. But like the fact that he wanted to be there, it could have been worked out. But then they ended up making the Westbrook trade. And then they end up having to, in theory, if they acquired DeRozan, trade Westbrook along with unprotected first for DeMar. It would just be ironic and funny at that point if they had to do that whenever that that option would have been available to them through no draft compensation at that point. I mean, well, you would have had to have given something to San Antonio to get DeMar as a free agent. But the other thing about this is, like, if you ask me personally would I make the DeMar trade, my answer is I am not making any trade with the Bulls that does not involve Alex Caruso, which is just hilarious to think that the Lakers could essentially give up two first-round picks to get a do-over on the 2021 offseason, <laughs> get back Caruso and DeRozan. Um, again, I, I don't think this is going to happen in part because I don't think the Lakers want to admit that they were wrong. But if you just look at what the Lakers actually need, well, they need a star guard defender more than they need another mid-range jump shooter. So I think DeMar would help. You're not getting me on the phone with Chicago without Caruso involved. I frankly don't care about Vucevic. I think Vucevic would be nice. But, like, DeMar and Vucevic for two picks, not doing that. Caruso's got to be in it. That's the only way you get me on the phone. Yeah, and, you know, I also want to touch on your point that you made earlier. Like, if I'm other teams, especially with how I've seen the front office and management, like, handle the team. And this is another rant for another day. I could talk about it too long, so I'm not going to go on it. And I've seen you talk about it on Twitter before, too just kind of like all that stuff that like Palinka in the front office has done. Like if I'm looking at the Lakers and I'm trying to make a trade, I am not trading with them unless for a first, unless that first is unprotected. Because if I'm, if I'm an opposing like GM or front office, I'm like the way this, that this front office has been, this team's going to be terrible. So I'm not allowing any kind of protection on that. You know, it's funny. I was saying this before the season. I really think, both the Lakers and the Pacers are going to regret not conceding a little bit and making a trade. Because if you're the Lakers, ultimately I think what you're headed for is a wasted season. Yeah. But if you're the Pacers, you're looking at re-signing Miles Turner, who has a very extensive injury history after the season and rolling the dice on him staying healthy moving forward at what will presumably be a very high salary. Like if I were to project Miles Turner's next contract, I would say it's going to be over a hundred million dollars. I think maybe two years from now, The Pacers are going to be sitting around thinking we would have really liked to have one unprotected Lakers pick in 2027. You know, like they, they demanded to, I think the Pacers are going to look back on this and think that Lakers pick looks so good. And this Turner contract is so prohibitive that we really should have just made the trade for one pick while the Lakers are going to be looking back and well, 
no, the Lakers are going to be convincing their fans. No, no, the next star is coming. <laughs> like, if you're going to say what was the best opportunity for the Lakers to win a title in this window, it was, I think, very clearly trade for Miles Turner and Buddy Heald. And they're going to be a part of them that's going to regret that. So I think there's going to be some remorse on both sides. But ultimately, both sides are so dug in on that that it's just I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, and I think the thing with the Pacers, too, is that they've kind of shown before that, like, they're not a team to go in and tank by any measure. And I'm not saying that they should have, like, full-on went tank mode this year, but I do agree that they might regret, like, not at least giving themselves a little bit better of a spot to get, like, a a better draft pick in what's going to be a super unique draft class, Mm -hmm. to say the least. You know, you don't have to get the – you know, the top, the number one pick. You don't have to get Wembenyama. You don't have to get yeah. a top five pick. But I kind of look at where Indiana is right now. They're in sort of a similar place to where, hypothetically, let's say, where Atlanta was a couple years ago. You've got a couple of really good young players going to, like, Halliburton is a star of the magnitude that I think Trey Young is. Not yet, but I think in a few years he will be. Yeah. If you're the Pacers, I think something you quietly have to kind of start thinking to yourself is – Where's our DeJounte Murray trade? Where's our three first round picks for maybe not a megastar? Because frankly, you're never going to get a megastar to come to Indiana. Yeah. But for a young, maybe sort of borderline all-star guy, I just literally, I think maybe an hour ago, threw out OG Ananobi for them on Twitter. Like, may, I don't know, maybe that's the guy, maybe it's somebody else. But I think the point I'm trying to get across here is the Pacers are kind of nearing the point where Halliburton is so good and Matherin might be so good as well they might have to start thinking about the three picks for one guy trade. And that sort of trade is a whole lot easier when you can offer the number seven pick than it is when you can offer the number 18 pick. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Um, So it's, it's going to be interesting to see kind of what happens here as we get closer uh, to every kind of deadline today being one of them. Um, Last question about the Lakers before we kind of just get real quick into some uh, trade deadline stuff as it gets closer. Do you think the team can make any kind of noise? Like if you had to, if you had to bet on it right now, is this team doing anything? Uh, no. If I had to bet on it right now, I would say they were, they're going to lose in the play-in. Yeah. Um, it'll be disappointing. It will be a wasted year of perhaps the greatest player of all time. It will be a wasted year from maybe the best player in the NBA this season. But frankly, I don't think the priorities of LeBron James and Anthony Davis are aligned with the priorities of the front office. And I think if we're being honest, I think LeBron is going to break the scoring record this year. The Lakers are going to make a whole big hullabaloo out of it. And as far as they're concerned, that's going to be enough of a win for them to carry them through an otherwise wasted year. Yeah. I, I it's agree. disappointing. I wish I had a better answer, but like, that's kind of the truth. Well, we can reconvene if they make a trade, but for now, this roster is not beating anybody in a seven game series. I agree. And I think the thing for me, just kind of like last point here is like, we hear trade, trade, trade. I just don't know why to this point I should be confident. I should be confident in Rob Polinka to like go out there and like make a game changing trade. And by the way, you shouldn't be, and nobody should be. The <laughs> only people who seem to believe in Rob Polinka are the people who share an office with Rob Polinka. <laughs> Well, we'll we'll see what they do. We'll see if they do anything. It's just going to be, like I said, to start out the pod, it's an interesting team. It's going to be interesting to see what they do. 
Hey, I really appreciate you coming on, my man. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah. And now I'd like to welcome on Rob Schaefer, who covers the Bulls for NBC Sports Chicago. Rob, what's up, man? Uh, not much. Uh, Kyle, it's good to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So I was able to get a hold of Rob through Twitter. Uh, you know, I I think I I think I might have like sent you a message once or twice, and then another time, and I was just trying to get a hold of you, and you know, you responded back. So I appreciate that. Uh, let's get straight into it, man. Let's talk about the Bulls. Um, it's been a weird year so far. Uh, through I guess like twenty seven games, I think. Um, just pretty simple. What's going on with this team right now? Yeah, I, I think right. Obviously, they have this breakout year last year where this new front office regime comes in at the start of the season two seasons ago and inherits a roster that, you know, they evaluated over the course of half a season, didn't end up liking a lot of the young players and a lot of the role guys and, and how they all fit together. So starting with that Vucevic trade in February 2021, they undergo this massive roster overhaul, eventually end up with a group at the start of last year where they added DeRozan, Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso in free agency. They, the entire team was completely flipped on its head other than basically Zach Levine, Kobe White, and Patrick Williams, who, who they drafted uh, in 2020. Great start to last season, flame out at the end, uh, first round exit, and we're, and we're one of the worst teams in the NBA, actually, after the All-Star break. But their, the, the front office's mission statement for the offseason was, hey, look, Lonzo missed from the mid-January on. He has a weird knee thing. Hopefully in the offseason he can get that right. We'll get him back at some point in this season that we're undergoing right now. And they'll be able to kind of rediscover their identity that had them at the top of the Eastern Conference at the beginning of last season. Uh, and the emphasis was a word that a lot of Bulls fans are probably sick of hearing at this point, continuity. The, the front office talk, and the coaching staff talked a lot about, listen, we, you know, last season they showed progress, but it it was really the first year that that core group was all together. And if you look at the best teams in the NBA, the true championship contenders, Warriors, Celtics, uh, last year, the Heat were an example of this. Uh, the Bucks, like a lot of these teams have had their core guys together for a few years now. So the Bulls wanted to give this group another shot to try to build on last year. The problem is Lonzo, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, uh, is nowhere close to back. And, and it's really in doubt, you know, if he's going to be back this season at all. And the continuity that they've gotten from this group has been more, has been closer to what they had at the end of the season than the beginning of the season. Um, the three stars, DeRozan, Levine, and Vucevic, uh, just have not played well enough together. Uh, some of the role guys have been good in their roles, but, you know, Dragic and Drummond, no matter how solid those signings are, those are bench guys. Caruso, as great as he is defensively, a little limited offensively. Pat Williams, I think, has quietly had a pretty solid year so far. He's, there are some things that are trending up about him. But he's not making that leap into being like an all-star type three and D guy, which which I think a lot of fans wanted, um, and obviously would have helped this team a lot more. Um, so you know he's young in his development, right? He's 21 years old, and he's in this winning situation. It's been a little bit of a strange story for him. And the sum of it all is, you know, like you said, through 27 games, they're 11 and 16. It's been wonky. They've actually been much better defensively than offensively, which you wouldn't think with the with the star talent that they have, the former All-Stars that they have on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, and then they've been really bad in close games, 3-11 and 11 in games that, that are within a five-point margin in five minutes or less uh, remaining. Uh, they were 25-16. and 16. They had the fourth best record in the NBA in those games last year. Now they have the worst record in the NBA in those games. So it's just a, it's a weird situation where I think the Lonzo injury has underscored some flaws with the roster. Uh, in general, you know, 
the ability to play non-isolation basketball, three-point shooting, even though the defense has been pretty good, overall defensive versatility is not a strength. Um, so it, it's been underwhelming. It's been disappointing. I think the optimist would say, well, the, you know, the Bulls are in a lot of close games. Maybe they get Lonzo back. Maybe it turns around down the stretch. But I think the pessimist would say, man, we've gotten a pretty long look at Levine, DeRozan, and Vucevic together. It hasn't looked as good as expected. And, you know, with these guys' age, with some of the contracts coming off the books this offseason, they might end up in a situation where by the end of this year, this core that they built might have flamed out, you know, in basically less than two seasons. So that that's kind of the fear, and that's those are the stakes for this team down the stretch. It's why there's so much urgency uh, for them to turn it around. Yeah, for sure. And I really like how you brought up, you know, the defense has been much better than the offense. They're ninth defensively in terms of defensive rating and 19th yeah. offensive rating. And that's just not expected with a team that their three best players are DeMar DeRozan, Zach Levine, and and Nikola Vucevic. I mean, I mean, this team's offense was really good to start the year last year. And I, I don't know if it has mm-hmm. to do with, you know, Levine, I know he's had a slow start, definitely not what they would have liked. I don't know if it's just guys being in and out of the lineup, but it has been really weird to see this team actually perform really well defensively and not be towards the top of the standings. I mean, if you would have told me in the offseason that the Bulls going into this year are, I know Lonzo's still out, but are going to have a top 10 defense, I would be like, okay, they're probably top four or five in the East. So what has it yeah. been about their defense that you've seen or maybe or, or about their offense that made them struggle so much that's really put them to this point? Yeah, so defensively their strengths are – forcing turnovers. Um, they have games where they foul too much, but generally they're they're pretty solid at defending without fouling. Um, and, you know, they've really done this all despite opponents shooting pretty well from behind the three-point line against them. Uh, you know, some days the three-point defense hasn't been great. Some days it's really just been hot shooting. Like the Wednesday, their loss to the Knicks was a good example of that. A lot of the, a lot of the Knicks threes were contested, still they made 18. That, it's 2022, that's going to happen. Um, you know, in 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 a game, uh, not, every once not in a to while, cut too. you off, but they are 27th in opponent three point percentage. That teams are shooting almost 38 percent from three against them. So there you go. And it's so the fact that they're top 10 in defense, even with that stat, is I think a testament to when they're locked in, their activity can can force a lot of havoc. And that's guys like Caruso, Javante Green, and Derek Jones Jr. coming off the bench. Uh, Pat Williams, he's gotten a lot better uh, in terms of his defensive energy level. Another interesting thing, the splits defensively, the Bulls are they actually rank pretty low in terms of defense in the first and second quarters relative to where they are in second halves. And what's funny about that is they it, it, it's it's what's so frustrating about this group. They they have a habit of starting games slow and getting into these double digit deficits, and then when they lock in and engage, they can be a pretty sound defensive group um, that, like I said, can can cause opponents to to kind of rush themselves and make mistakes. Uh, Billy Donovan, I mean, he he gets a lot of flack from the fan base, understandably, but he's always been a pretty good defensive coach. So I give him some credit for that. He he coached up the defense to being at a top five level at the beginning of last year uh, when they when they had Lonzo. Uh, in terms of the offense, they've done uh, in the in in the offseason, there was a big emphasis on trying to diversify their schemes a little bit so that they weren't just playing solely one on one basketball with DeRozan uh, and then to a lesser extent, Levine and Vooch. Because as much as that was kind of their bread and butter and winning a lot of the close games they did in the middle of last season, by the end of the year, Billy's opinion, and I think fans and everybody watching the team would agree, it just wasn't sustainable to rely on DeMar going one-on-one every game, especially against the best teams in the league. So they've tried to make their offense, you know, Billy loves the word random. They've tried to incorporate a little bit more ball and player movement. 
And the result of that has been a little bit of disjointedness, like as much as isolation, they don't want to be a total isolation team. That is kind of the thing they were best at last year. So you're taking that off the table a little bit in hopes that you can, you know, get other guys involved and have a higher ceiling. But those effects have been slow to to take hold. There have been games where they've turned the ball over a lot, which has really, really hurt them. Um, and I think, you you know, that can speak to the ball ball movement increase um, with guys that maybe aren't comfortable with that yet. Uh, we knew coming into the year they weren't going to be a good three-point shooting team just in terms of volume. Um, they shoot a decent percentage on them. But with Lonzo out, Zach is really the only guy. And, and Kobe White, when he plays, he's not in the rotation every game. Those are really – and Vucevic, I suppose, but he, his stroke is a little inconsistent. Beyond that, they just don't have high-volume three-point shooters. So that's always going to be a weakness for them. Um, they don't – you know, they're not a great offensive rebounding team, so they don't compensate in that regard. Uh, they get to the free-throw line a decent amount, but that that even will come and go on a game-to-game basis. And then the last thing I'd say is, as it relates to Lonzo, they miss him in terms of transition. I mean, that, that that's what made – this offense half-court-wise was never – even when they were high ranked last year, they were never an elite half court offense. It was, they were so devastating in transition because Lonzo was so good at forcing turnovers, pulling down a rebound, getting a quick outlet and hitting ahead to, to Zach or, or Kobe or DeMar or whoever is running out long. And they were a really fun to watch and like devastating fast break team. They still run a lot because Billy is hammering that home that they need to run a lot because the half court offense isn't so great, uh, but they're just not as efficient uh, in that play type without Lonzo. So you know, the defense has been fine without Lonzo. They still miss him on that end, in my opinion, just in terms of how inconsistent they can be. Uh, and then offensively, they miss him shooting 40-plus percent from three on seven attempts a game. Sure. And they really miss his playmaking uh, in transition because, you know, I, I don't have a stat for this in front of me. Uh, I looked it up. They were towards the bottom of the league in this a uh, week or so ago when I checked it. But if you watch the game, there are just these head-scratching turnovers on fast breaks. There are these three-on-one scenarios where it feels like they don't convert as many as they should. Um, I think they're leaving points on the table there. Uh, and then, you know, the turnovers have come and gone. So all in all, it's been underwhelming offensively. I think there's reason to believe that can get a little bit better just because of the talent that they have, the scoring talent that they have. But what's what would scare me if I was a Bulls fan is that the recipe for this team to be, like you said, a top four or five seed is probably to be an elite offense. And right now, I think the upside for them is to get to like average or slightly above average. I think they're 20th right now. Um, so I, it just doesn't with, with the lack of shooting, with the, with the pace issues and, you know, with the ball movement stuff, still adjusting that I just don't see a path for them to get in like top five or top seven, which when you build this roster, right. You would think that that would be the the path to, uh, to success. For sure. And, you know, I like the lack of shooting point, you know, just right here in front of me per clean the glass, the bulls shoot just slightly over league average right now. League average 36% from three, the bulls are shooting 36.2. But the Bulls are dead last in three-point rate. Um, mm-hmm. 29.5% of their shots are threes. For the average team, that's 35.6. So when you're not shooting at a super elite level from three and you're not taking a lot, it is going to be hard to compete more with teams offensively in this new three-point era that we saw that we've seen for the last, last six, seven years. Um, but, yeah, because yeah, like because that adds that adds up to they make. You know, regardless of the percentage, and there are days where they shoot a decent percentage, they're they're only making ten a game, which is twenty eighth. So yeah. they're just there are so many nights when you look at the box score, like the Knicks game was a good example. And not to say the Knicks are a great three point shooting team, they're, they're last in the league in percentage, or at least were the other night. But they made eighteen threes, the Bulls made nine. Like overcoming that twenty seven point gap, 
it's 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 just hard to do, especially when you're not a great offensive rebounding team, when you're turning the ball over. Twenty uh, fifth in offensive rebound rate. So and and the free throw line, it was even that night. A lot of nights they have the advantage because Demar is so great at drawing fouls, but not being a dominant team in that respect. Like it, it's just hard on a nightly basis. It just feels like too many things have to go right to to compensate for their uh, for their shortcomings. Yeah, and you know, I want to I want to backtrack a little bit. Uh, you made a comment about Billy Donovan, you know, saying that you know, understandably, fans get frustrated. He was recently mm-hmm. extended. Um, what's kind of like the feel around the fan base and just you guys that cover a team that cover the team uh, about his extension? Yeah, so. Fan base, it, it, tough for me to gauge only because the most interaction I have with fans is on Twitter. And I, and I think, you know, that could always be like the most vocal and, and, and frustrated segment of fans. Uh, and also some of the most educated. So I'm not, I'm not you know, talking down on anybody, yeah. but I don't know that that's fully representative. I, I, I saw a lot of people, you know, upset about it uh, fan-wise, um, you know, on social media at least. I thought it was a little weird, not because, like, to me, extending Billy – what does it say about how the front office feels about him? It, it means that they have confidence in him. It means they like the job he's done so far. I think that's a reasonable assessment of the two seasons so far. He came in year one, was pretty undermanned talent-wise. That yeah. team got off. They were still under 500, but they got off to you know a start. Zach made his first all-star team. They were off to a decent start. They finished with 31 wins. Short of the play, and even with Vooch, it was disappointing. But it, it was a step forward from the boiling years where they're in like the low to mid 20s <laughs> and, you know, are just like a public embarrassment. You know, it, it was a step forward from that. The next year, they get off to the crazy start, uh, you know, down the stretch. You could chalk it up to injuries and just the weird, disjointed season. Still 46 wins, still snap the playoff drought, which was a goal of theirs, obviously. Um, you know, they got they got pretty much waxed by Milwaukee. So I'm not going to take too much positive away from that. Uh, they did get a game from him, but it was, it was, you know, it was all she wrote after that. So I get saying, okay, you know, we like how Billy has represented the organization. We like the way that he coached up this group at the first half of last season. Some weird stuff happened, but we feel good about him going forward. And generally when you look at Billy Donovan's track record, like I think he's an above average coach. Like I, I know people get frustrated with him, but I don't, you know, compared to some of the bad coaches in the league, I think he's a, he's a step up, uh, above that level. What was strange to me is the extension uh, obviously was this off season. The team didn't make an announcement about it. Usually that's something you would want to celebrate, right? If you're a team extending your coach that you believe in. (laughs) So I thought that was a little puzzling. And then it leaks out, you know, 20 games into the year when they're off to this disappointing start. I think that had to have rubbed people the wrong way. I know even from a reporter lens, like I thought it was a little bizarre. And then the fact to me that, you know, he's in the second year or sorry, he had just finished the second year of a four year contract. Usually, to me, it makes the most sense to do moves like that, extensions like that, before the final season of a contract. So now, you know, multiple years on top of the two years that he already has left. This is just my perspective on it. Like, the front office really, really loves Billy uh, because of his style. Um, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a player's coach. They, there's good synergy between the front office and Billy. There's good communication. The relationships there are all strong. But for my, like, kind of outsider seat, I thought that the state of the franchise was kind of tenuous coming into this year because you didn't know about Alonzo. You didn't know if they were going to actually be able to improve on last season. I kind of saw a step back coming um, and that's what's happened so far. We'll see if they could turn it around. I would not have wanted to lock myself long-term into, and it's not even just a specific building, but really anything about this group until I maybe not had to, but until was like the reasonable time to do it. 
And to me, I don't think there, I doubt there would've been any offense taken if this extension gets done next off season, you know, before the final year of the contract, as opposed to two years before. So that's, that's like a, a small quibble for me. Um, but I just thought that was a little, again, a little like uncommon to see that after like two years into a four-year deal, as opposed to after the third season, like with NBA players, for example, like guys become extension eligible before the last season of their contract, not, not two years, uh, generally. Um, so yeah, I mean, polar, I'll call it polarized reaction by the fan base. I just thought the rollout of the decision was puzzling. Uh, it's hard to quibble too much with the decision itself. Cause again, I think he's been solid and he's the type of coach that, that, that they want. They went after him super hard when he was a coaching free agent. So I don't think Billy's coached in a way that you wouldn't expect based on his track record. So, you know, they're getting what they paid for to a degree. Um, but certainly just very like weird and bullsy the way that it, that it came out. Like, I think that's part of the frustration too, is this organization has just done some puzzling stuff, you know, especially in the coach hire department over the years. And I think people, uh, you know, are on high alert uh, for, for stuff like that, as far as the fans go. Yeah, for sure. It, it was weird. Um, I, some coaches like get extended and you'll never hear about it. And it's like Steve Kerr, for instance, has been extended, you mm-hmm. know, times like you never hear about his, it's just, it is weird how that works. Um, I, I do agree that Billy Donovan is a step above like those guys that you would look at in the league. Like, oh, you know, not very good. He's obviously like a solid coach. And I do kind of genuinely feel bad for like him and the whole Bulls situation here because like even without Lonzo this season so far, like I think what would be like the ideal five, I mean, just my guess, is the lineup here that plays really well. And it's Alex Caruso, Zach Levine, DeMar, Pat Williams, and Vucevic. Mm-hmm. Those guys are plus 11.9 per 100 possessions, but they've only mm-hmm. been able to play 210 possessions together. Yeah, so the, the reason for that is because that's kind of a recent adjustment that, that they've made. They they were starting Io at the point guard spot Yeah. Uh, for Lonzo. Now, obviously, they were closing a lot of games with Caruso, and Caruso, he's missed one game this year, but he's been more durable uh, than he was last year when he had a lot of kind of bumps and bruises along the way, obviously you get the Grayson Allen broken wrist thing. That's a whole fluke uh, situation. I, I think, you know, the part of the reason to initially start IO was one, you know, obviously this front office, they love IO. I mean, what a find in the second round, he's been very productive for them, started a lot last year and, and fared, you know, as admirably as you could expect. So, you know, give him a chance to spread his wings, see if you get a year or two jump from him. And at the same time, you could play Caruso all the important minutes of the game, all the higher leverage minutes down the stretch of the fourth quarter, but you don't have to run him into the ground playing him 30 plus minutes a game when we all know his style is just naturally going to lead to more injury risk than other players. He's diving on the floor. He's taking charges. He's like bulldozing through screens, like trying to blow up actions. He's a very physical player. So, and that's something that Billy, he's talked about that a lot. Like the bulls are very aware of that and have tried to mitigate his injury risk. The problem was, and I, I mentioned those slow starts earlier, uh, especially defensively, it got to a point where that starting lineup, where it was the big three of Levine, Vooch, and, and DeRozan, plus Io and Pat, it got to the point where it was just, I think, untenable for the coaching staff. And they, you know, this is where the win now pressure kind of kind of kicks in, where it's like, all right, we just got to have our best five out there. And we, and we got to have some defensive energy and tone setters to start games. So they moved Javante Green and Caruso into the starting lineup for the Warriors game. Uh, a few weeks ago, Javante immediately, you know, he gets hurt in that game and, and he has bone bruise in his knee and he misses three or four games after that. So even though Billy makes this starting lineup change, all right, well now Javante's hurt. We got to put Pat back in the starting lineup one game after putting him to the second unit. 
And Pat's been on a string of, I mean, I don't want to say great games, but for him, like above, like above where he was playing earlier in the season games, he's shooting the yeah. lights out from three. We really, I think, made some defensive strides. He's rebounding, still not the level you want, but better than he was at the beginning of the season, protecting the rim. Like you're seeing the signs of what makes him such an interesting prospect in a more sustained way than in his first two seasons. And that lineup data, most of it, I would guess, I haven't looked at exactly how the possessions break down. I would guess the vast majority of that sample size is from the last five or six games. Since that lineup has basically been with the Javante injury, they kind of stumbled into it. Yeah. Um, and Billy has talked about, you know, thinking about maybe putting Javante back in the in the first unit. You know, he's healthy now. He hasn't the last two games, but maybe eventually. My opinion, I, I think you got to leave Pat in there because this team, this, the ideal like ceiling version of this team is its best if you know, Patrick Williams, if his development comes to fruition. And the fact that you're getting him getting some positive momentum rolling now, he closed the last Knicks game, which he hasn't done for a lot of games this season and made some big, big plays. Um, I think you got to keep rolling with that. The data supports it, that that group has been really, really good together. Um, at least to start games, you know, the, the closing, the clutch game stuff has, has not been good for them, but at least to start. Um, so I, I think that group is obviously the ideal probably five that they have right now, as long as Pat's having a good game, he's still prone to inconsistency. And then obviously their ideal five in general is Lonzo in the Pat spot, because when they were at their peak last year, Pat was out. He broke his wrist early in the year. That's kind of an underrated injury adversity. That was they like last year too, camp, just... wasn't it? No, it was after uh, four or five games. He, oh, he had okay. an ankle sprain in camp. Um, and it was honest, it was similar to the, it, it, I don't want to say that it was a fluke play like the Grayson Allen play was, except it was a totally accidental inadvertent, like collision with Mitchell Robinson. Pat was going up for a dunk in a game against the Knicks and Robinson went to block him and they just collided in the air. Pat just fell awkwardly on the wrist, broke it surgery out until, you know, the spring, basically yeah. he came back for like the last couple regular season games in the playoffs. So they were closing when they were at their best in November and December of last year with Lonzo Caruso and then DeRozan Levine Vucevic, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that lineup was, you know, phenomenal. And they were, they were great closing games. Uh, they weren't starting that group, but they were closing with it. And, you know, the, the skill sets of Lonzo and Caruso defensively just so complement what the Levine DeRozan Vucevic trio, their defensive shortcomings. Um, so I think, you know, they're hoping that if Pat can continue to develop defensively, he can, be sort of a you know some kind of compensation for that he's never going to replace what Lonzo is with Lonzo's two-way ability and his passing and everything like that um but you know it, it, it with a team that's underperformed so badly this season to have a lineup that's performing that well they definitely got to lean into it as much as as much as possible and, and see if there's something there that they can work with yeah um you know, it is a little weird for this group right now. Like we said, they're 11 and 16. They're four and six in their last 10. You know, they had the just demoralizing loss to the Hawks um, off, mm -hmm. off the lob to A.J. Griffin and then the loss to the Knicks after coming back in overtime. Do you feel like that there's optimism around the group or is it kind of haunting over their head like we're in a really bad spot right now? Yeah. I don't know if optimism is the word I'd use, but maybe like productive frustration. Like there's a, there's a really like deep seated, like frustration with the way that they're losing some of these games. Um, definitely just listening to how players talk. 
because not only are these close games, they're winnable games. Like that Hawks game, you're up by one with 0.5 seconds left. Like you have to, you have to win that game. You just do. Uh, Knicks game, there was, there were some, you know, the Knicks, I'm not saying that the Knicks didn't like earn that win by any means, but you know, if it goes to overtime, it's right there for the taking for you. Um, so, you know, the, the common line from veterans, specifically DeMar, uh, Zach Caruso has talked a lot about this. Billy's talked a lot about this. The hope within the locker room and and the building, I would say is that one after the all-star break last year, the bulls, when they, when they were one of the worst teams in the league. I think they finished the season seven and 15 in their last 22. And they were getting blown out in most of their losses, especially yeah. by good teams, just getting run off the floor. 11 of their 16 games being within five points with five minutes or less to play. As much as nobody wants to talk about like silver linings or moral victories, that's better than getting just waxed every night. For sure. Uh, so that'd be one thing. And then I think one, you have to hope that just some of these like variance luck things in late, late and close games kind of start to swing their way at some point. I don't think they could possibly have whatever their winning percentage is three and 11. I, I don't think they're going to be that bad all season. Um, and then the hope is like Billy says this all the time. He wants this adversity that they're going through to ultimately pay off for them in the long run and make them a, a, a more mentally tough team. Um, Cause clearly last year they came out of the gates you know, with their hair on fire and hit adversity after the all-star break. And it was so late in the season. They just never seemed to recover from it. They just, they just hit that lull at the wrong time. The hope is that this season could be the reverse of that. The problem is, you know, Lonzo just, it's an impossible subject to ignore. There's just no return insight for him. Um, So that's kind of hanging over the team, even if they don't want to acknowledge that we're, they're waiting for him. Like it is hanging over the team to an extent. Um, And, you know, just some of these flaws that we talked about earlier in the show, those aren't changing. It's, it's just, things are just going to have to start going their way a little bit more. Uh, Could it? Sure. Maybe, but ultimately what's the ceiling of this group, especially without Lonzo, like a 500 team looking like, you know, they've been out of the plan for most of the season. I think if they could get even into the top half of the play in mix, like that would be, that would take, that would, that would take them picking up some momentum here. So, you know, that that ceiling of last year where they were top of the East and looked like they could host a playoff series, maybe win a round or two. Like, they're so far from that right now that even if they reverse some of the things that are ailing them, you're still looking at kind of that, that the, the worst place to be in the NBA, right? That kind of hovering around the 500 mark, not good enough to really be a legit title contender, but not bad enough to, you know, play the draft pick game and 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 try to stack future prospects and play play the development card. Um, so that, that's the real concern is do I think they'll end up playing better, especially in close games? Like, yeah, marginally, but even when they do, the ceiling of this group is just looking lower than it did 12 months ago this time. Yeah. And I I totally agree. Like as it is right now, they are in the worst spot that you can be in an NBA, basically NBA purgatory. And kind of with that being that point being brought up, uh, just kind of our last little point of discussion here. Do you think that there's any chance that this team would look to have like a fire sale if this trend continued to be really bad as the season went on? I think it would have to get, I I don't think, I don't, I wouldn't consider it likely at this point. I think it would have to get significantly worse to the point that they like really had no option. Um, Just, I think there's still that belief within the front office. Like even if it's a shred of belief that if they can get this group whole um, that they, you know, think they can make some noise down the stretch of the season or in the postseason, 
you know, how whatever an outside or a fan thinks of it. Like, I just I just think that's how they came into the season, um, you know, hammering the continuity stuff, hammering the, you know, this group can coalesce and become more than the sum of its parts. And then also, you know, obviously it's possible for them to retain their first round pick this year, but from the Vucevic trade, they owe it to the Magic if they don't get in the top four. Yeah. the pro- With the flattened lottery lots, like the fact that even if you finish with the worst record in the league, um, I think it's still, you have a around a 50% chance. I can't remember the exact number, uh, but of losing that pick regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I get it. If you're somebody who says, well, who cares? You still got to go for it. It's such a good draft. There's so much elite, like potentially franchise changing talent at the top. I just, I, I'm still in believe it when I see it mode, when it comes to this front office pivoting so quickly. Um, off of this group uh to me like the you know like tanking is i don't think something they're ever going to do just by the straight definition of the word but yeah you know pivot retool rebuild maybe not rebuild but you know reconfigure the pieces the pieces on the chess set here i'd be i I would be more or i would expect that more to be like an off-season undertaking than a mid-season pivot uh so we'll see if it gets to that point at this point, I still think just with the talent on the team, with the fact that nobody in the East other than Boston, Milwaukee, and Cleveland has really separated themselves, they're still only, you know, what, a game and a half out of 10th and then three or four out of sixth. Like, and being in being in all these games, again, it's not as if they're getting run off the floor every night. I think they're going to give this group every last chance they can to kind of make that push. Uh, but, you know, January 15th is when certain guys become eligible to be traded. Then the trade deadline's coming up, all-star break in February. Like the clock starts ticking soon. Yeah. And uh, you know, they're in a stretch right now where they, they have some winnable games on the schedule and they've gotten off to a little bit of a rocky start with the losses to Atlanta and New York. So, you know, at some point we're kind of creeping up on the halfway point of the season and they got to start stacking wins soon. I just think it's gonna take a lot uh, for them to make that pivot. I think it would be a really tough pill to swallow for the front office. Uh, and then obviously it's just a big undertaking to even you know, quote unquote tank to the level that you could be assured of keeping your pick. There's just no way of, you know, guaranteeing yourself that. Um, I guess you could stack future assets in trades. And, you know, even if you lose the pick, you could set yourself up a little bit better for the future. But my sense is still that they're not ready to pull the plug on uh, on this group. I think there's still some level of belief um, that if they can come together later in the season, they can make what they call progress uh, off of last year. Yeah, and that's what seems right. Um... You know, in this iteration, especially in this iteration of the NBA, you don't see a lot of like all-star caliber people being traded at the trade deadline. It's coming over the summer if it mm-hmm. does happen. And, you know, I just wanted to ask from your perspective, because there are people that are trying to link, you know, some of the Bulls guys to like the Lakers or maybe some other teams that are trying to maybe swoop in and improve. I just think that it's worth bringing up at least because – the worst possible situation, in my opinion, for the Bulls is that they kind of hang around where they're at right now. The draft lottery comes. They end up with a pick that's somewhere between like five through eight. And then it's just a mm-hmm. repeat. It's just a repeat of whenever they made a trade to try to improve, didn't get anything out of it. And then the Orlando Magic ended up with a player in Franz Wagner who has been awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that would be the worst case. Um scenario and and frankly it's it's looking like at this point the likely scenario that they kind of make 
they push as much as they can, but then you end up maybe not at eight, but in like the, although that's where they are right now, but say they got up into the play and mix, like within the lottery. I mean, that's, you know, giving up two lottery picks and a guy who looks like he could be a future all-star in Wagner in that Vucevic trade, not to mention Wendell. Who's been I good. mean, that trade is really good, man. It looks, it looks, it, you know, it, it might've been lopsided at the time. It looks incredibly lopsided in, in the magic's favor now, especially with Vucevic's uh, free agency coming up so yeah it's it's certainly a valid point and i you know the reports and the rumors about everyone you know the star the damar and vooch specifically being linked to you know different teams specifically the lakers that stuff's only going to pick up because a lot of those reports are oh the league is watching the bulls oh the lakers are monitoring these players and that happens all the time in front Mm -hmm. offices like it's your job as a front office executive to do your due diligence on opposing players to keep your eye on situations no, uh, no report I've seen or nothing that I've personally heard that like the Bulls are entertaining anything like that or even on that wavelength. Rightfully so, but and 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 rightfully so because of well, one, just trades aren't feasible at this point in the season just because not everyone is trade eligible, uh, and you know it's early, so you, you still give it a chance to to turn itself around. Um, but that stuff is only gonna pick up, you know, especially when the Lakers are involved. You know what I mean? Like that, you know, that's strategic leaks and you know and you know stuff like that I, I don't think that's uncommon um for that franchise specifically so we'll see where it goes we'll see where it goes i just uh you know it's it's just amazing how far they've fallen you know in the last 12 months and i'm beyond the point of saying Alonzo's going to come back and fix everything because even if he does come back you don't you just don't know what he's going to look like like what level of his past performance is he going to be able to get to with the injury history that he's accumulated now and not playing basketball in over a year. But it's just really unbelievable to me that he had such a profound impact on this team at the beginning of last year that, I mean, it just seems like it all fell apart when, when he got hurt Uh, again, I don't believe that's all him. I think some of that speaks to the broader roster flaws that were going to creep up eventually and, and him being out kind of just accelerated that timeline. Yeah. Um, But it's, it's really just been a, a brutally frustrating situation, obviously for the team, but also the fan base, which has been, you know, teased in the past and then had, you know, point guard injuries kind of screw with them. It's just, it, it's, it seems like this cycle went faster this time, but it's, it's got to feel really familiar uh, for Bulls fans. And uh, it, it's definitely a, a frustrating time for that reason. Yeah. And I just, I hate it for the Bulls because they really did have something going and and I commend teams that try to that try to go all in and win games. I mean that yeah. seems, you know it seems to seems to be in this iteration of the NBA it's like you know you've got like the top of the top stars and you're going for it or you're like hey let's try to hit in the lottery. Like I commend these teams that are like let's try to build something and go win and then like maybe we can you know influence someone to want to play here or be able to do something which they did getting Demar there in a sense. Mm-hmm by, you know, showing we're trying to win. So it's just, it's so unfortunate that a guy like Lonzo too had been so good whenever he was playing for them. And then who knows where he goes from here. You know, the current, I just remember Adrian Wojnarowski coming out, I think on ESPN one day and was saying like, there's really no guarantee that he's even back this year. So I, I, you know, I don't know. It's weird, but hopefully for the Bulls best interests and just, from a viewer's perspective of appreciating a team trying to win some games, they can try to figure some things out. And hopefully, even if it's over the summer, maybe Lonzo can get back and this team can try to get back into being a real playoff team in the next year if it doesn't work out this year. But 
Rob, hey, I really appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, no problem. It's it's always fun. Uh, always fun chopping it up. Uh, so, yeah, appreciate you having me. Yeah, and um, love talking bulls with you. And, guys, if you uh, don't have – if you don't follow Rob on Twitter, he is at Rob Schaefe, I think. It's R-O-B and S-C-H-A-E-F. Am I correct on that? Yep. yep. Yeah. He puts out a lot of good stuff, so definitely go give him a follow if you just want – if you just are an NBA fan or a Bulls fan or anything. But, Rob, appreciate you again, man. But with that being said, this is the end of Episode 34 of the Coast to Coast Podcast. See you guys next week. Thank you.